0: The following sermon is from Redemption Bible Church of New Braunfels, where we are proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology in order to fulfill the Great Commission in the spirit of the Great Commandment. Turn in your copy of God's Word to Titus 2, verses 11 to 15. If you don't have a Bible this morning, um, or you want to be in the English Standard Version, which we use, just stick up your hand, and our ushers will get one to you. If you don't have a Bible at all, this is our gift to you. Merry Christmas. You can keep it. If you just forgot it at the end of the service, just leave it on your pew, and uh, it can be there for you. Um, If you need sermon notes, I'm sure Greg has some of those, too, if you want to follow along. And those blue Bibles, Titus 2, is found on page 579. But turn in your copy of God's Word to Titus 2, 11 to 15. We continue this morning in our verse-by-verse series through this epistle. And Titus has been good to us these last several weeks, hasn't it? Amen. Anybody learned something new in the course of these verses? Anybody been challenged by something? Convicted maybe, even, encouraged? I hope so. I really hope so, God's word does all of those things when we actively engage it. God's spirit will teach us and challenge us, instruct us, convict us and encourage us through his word. And so I hope that you are being equipped, that you are being outfitted to live out your faith and to glorify God with your life. I hope that your understanding of the gospel has increased. I hope that your pursuit of godliness has been inspired And I hope that your zeal for good works has been intensified as we seek to get this message out. But do you know what lies behind all of those things? Our understanding, our ability, our zeal for good works, do you know what lies behind our ability to grow in all of those things? It's grace. It's grace. Grace. Grace simply defined as undeserved favor. It's receiving something that we didn't earn or we didn't work for. And the entire Christian life is impacted by grace. We are immersed in it. We are swimming in it. We are overwhelmed and overflowing in it. And this is the point that Paul makes to Titus in our verses today. It's this, God's grace equips God's people. God's grace equips God's people, and none of us could live for Christ apart from God lavishing His undeserved favor on us. And it is a beautiful thing in our verses today that Paul brings us back to after, especially last week, laying out a long list of how we are to live in a manner that glorifies and honors God. That can be a heavy burden trying to do it on our own because we cannot, can we? It is all by grace. So let's read our text now. I want to read it for you and you follow along in Titus 2, 11 through 15. It says this, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Everyone said, Amen, Amen, right? Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. This is God's word for God's people. Let's take this now a verse at a time and feel the impact of grace in our lives. See, beginning in verse 11, the text where we've begun is grace saves us grace saves us, the grace of God has appeared, he says, the grace of God has appeared and it's appeared in the physical form of Jesus Christ. You may not realize it, but these verses, this passage is also a Christmas passage. It is a Christmas message. We're in this book very intentionally on these dates because it is pointing us to the birth of Jesus Christ. It's referring here, this grace of God appearing to his birth and life, that first coming, the first advent, when God came to us in the flesh. And why did he come? What does it say in verse 11? He came what? To bring salvation for all people. God knew that humanity was in a pickle and could not get out of it. He knew we were stuck, he knew we were enslaved to our sin under the wrath of God, John three thirty six says. And so God's grace appeared. It burst onto planet Earth on a lonely Judean hillside. It was born in a barn to young parents and announced to insignificant shepherds. And for 2,000 years, his birth that brought salvation is being proclaimed to all people. The angel in Luke 2, verse 10, when he appeared to the shepherds, he says, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For all people, grace has appeared finally, his life and death accomplishing salvation for his children, and it is a message to be proclaimed to all people now this is glorious news, this gospel of grace is not just for the Jews, but it's for Jews and Gentiles. It was for slaves and freemen. it is for Africans and Asians and Europeans and North and South Americans, Australians, all people, this is the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation has come. Salvation has come. See, grace saves us. This is what he's bringing us back to. Grace is what gets us into the pool. Grace is what, what, what even enables us to swim. We were, we were comfy on our couch just watching life go by until the grace of God appeared. The good news of Jesus Christ took us out of living for ourselves when we had no desire, no ability to do anything else, and it thrust us into the pool. See, when grace burst into our life, it reordered our desires. It reprogrammed our abilities. Bringing salvation. And so the application is pretty obvious, isn't it? Grace comes in. Grace saves us. We are immersed in it. So what are we to do? Believe Jesus. We should believe Jesus, not just believe in Jesus, like kids believe in Santa, But we believe that Jesus is who he says he is. We believe that the scripture who prophesied about Christ has come true. We believe the demands and the commands of Christ of what it means to live a godly life. We believe that he rose again, defeating death and winning eternal life for us. Do you believe Jesus this Christmas? Do you believe that he is the Savior? Do you believe that he has appeared? Give me an amen if you have. Like, come on, come on, come on. I know this is like I'm preaching up here and you're like, whoa, 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 but give me an amen, come on. Grace has appeared. It has burst into your life and that is what the Christmas season is all about. And some of us, maybe we're in the midst of all the chaos and all the consumerism, all the things that are going on with Christmas and let just the grace of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, that salvation has come, burst into the busyness of your day today. Believe that Christ has come, this is great. This is gracious news for God's people. But it doesn't stop here, as he reminds us that all of life is grace, God's grace equips God's people, it saves us, but it also trains us. Look here, grace doesn't just get us into the pool by saving us, it also trains us how to swim. Verse 12 now is really a recap of the earlier part of chapter 2, verses 2 to 10. Last week was challenging for all of us, I'm sure. You might be overwhelmed in the manner in which you must live. I can never measure up to these things. Some of us maybe realize there are some major life shifts that need to happen in my life. I said it last week, and our verse reminds us here, you can't do any of these things apart from God's grace. You can't do any of these things. Grace trains us how to say no and how to say yes. Grace teaches us and trains us how to swim, how to uh, do different strokes, how to strategize for the wind and really just even how to stay afloat. It is God's grace that comes into our life and enables us to live the way that we are supposed to live just as a swimmer has to say no to certain things and yes to certain ways of living, of certain foods and training regimens, all of those things. It is grace that trains us. It is grace that teaches us how to swim. And God and his grace has laid before us his word. He's put before us God's people. He's put before us a diverse, multi-generational community of believers to disciple and mentor and train us in godliness. And really, as verse 12 is gonna point out here, look at it with me, train us in two ways. First, it's to train us to say no. He says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. Any of those still kind of lurking in your life? Any sort of ungodly habits that you know you need to bump in a bad way? or worldly passions, what 1 John 2, 16 calls the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things that you need to renounce and put behind you. You can't do it on your own. God's grace enables you to do this. That's why he's given you the encouragement of the scripture and the discipleship of a small group to say no to these things, to renounce them like a new citizen coming into America and, and becoming an American citizen has to renounce their former country, has to renounce their citizenship of the country of origin. In the same way, God's grace, as we come to faith, we are renouncing our old man, our old self, That is no longer true of who I am. Those habits that once enslaved me, I renounce them. And I am now a citizen of heaven, following the master, Jesus Christ. And so we renounce them. We say no to them. But we also say, yes, it trains us. God's grace trains us to say yes to what? To self-control, upright, godly lives. We live by grace really in every direction. Here it is, look at verse 12. There's that ever-present, all-important characteristic of God's people, do you see it there? We are to live self-controlled. It's been multiple times, we saw it all throughout chapter two, when something is repeated in God's word, it's pretty important. As as a good student of God's word, as you are reading it, start underlining these things, circling it. Self-control is a very important characteristic of living for the Lord, and it is God's grace that enables you to live self-controlled. See, self-control is an inward thing. It's restraint, right? It's the ability to say no. It's the ability to say yes to the things that honor the Lord. And so as we live this way, this self-control is how we, uh, uh, how we live inwardly. But this upright, this is how we live outwardly among others. Notice it says upright, not uptight. God's people don't need to be uptight, okay? Don't get that mixed in. But we live upright, holy lives among other people. Talked a lot about this already in this, in this uh, epistle. But we're to live godly, that upward, how we live before the Lord, a holy, reverent, disciplined life before the Lord. And all these things require discipline, don't they? All these things uh, require uh, putting our nose to the ground and working out our salvation with fear and trembling. But this is not a man-made discipline, is it, Beloved? This is not something, again, that we muster on our own. Rather, in our discipline, we reflect Jesus in all of this. As God's grace is training us, we just reflect Christ. We follow his example. He is the one that we should imitate. See, just as we are disciplined in these things, as we want to grow, and God has given us his word to teach us this, did you know that even in Jesus' humanity, he turned to the scripture when he was tempted? When Satan was tempting him into the wilderness, he fought back with God's word. When you find yourself tempted, when you find yourself in despair, when you find yourself needing direction, reflect Christ, go to the scripture, and see where he would have you go. Christ also, he consistently met with the Father through prayer, he sought out the community of his closest friends in his greatest and most difficult hours seeking their prayers, seeking their companionship even as he was being betrayed in the garden. See, we reflect Christ (laughs) as we seek to live grace-filled, gracious lives, even in our training, even in the worst of times, even in our seasons of waiting. Even then, God's grace is on display, is at play, teaching you how to swim, how to live in God's earth. It's grace. The very breath that you breathe, the very decisions that you make is God's grace to train us. But it is also at play. It is not just here in the present age. It is, verse 13, God's grace keeps us. See, grace was in the, at play in the past, accomplishing salvation, freeing us from the penalty of sin, God's grace is at play today in the present age, freeing us from the power of sin, from its mastery over us. But verse 13 shows us that grace is also propelling us forward into the future as we wait for our freedom from the presence of sin. See, we are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of God of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. See, the impact of the Christmas season is that it teaches us how to live in limbo. Looking back at the Christmas season, at that first advent, that first coming of Christ, but also in our longing for the second coming or this second advent of Christ, this blessed hope of his great return, our eager expectation that at any moment the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ could appear before us, that it could burst back into our planet with that shout, with that trumpet blast to summon his saints, we who are saved. That is our blessed hope, that is the longing which we have, the waiting that we look forward to And it's this expectation that keeps us, especially on the hard days. But even in the great ones, as we long for something better. It's that hope that is God's grace to steady us through the waves of life. See, it's this grace that keeps a swimmer focused on that ledge ahead. It's that God's grace that keeps the swimmer there where relief and rest are still ahead even when we're out of breath, even when our muscles are cramping. It's the motivation to keep swimming. It's the hope that relief and rest are just a few strokes away and God's grace keeps us in those moments. It keeps our eyes fixed on Christ. It teaches us how to live in the tension, in the limbo of here, of this solid foundation, the the truth that we know that Christ did come as a baby to save his people, and yet we are looking ahead to where he will come and be the king, beloved, wait for Jesus. And allow God's grace with joyful expectation to give you that confidence that better days are ahead. Psalm 40, verse one says, I waited patiently for the Lord. And if the time between the first and second coming teaches us anything, it teaches us that God's timing is different than ours, yeah? But his grace is what keeps us as we wait patiently for him. And we feel that probably most acutely at Christmas season. As we remember these things and as we look ahead, You'll notice many of the Christmas songs that we sing speak about the past things, about Christ's first coming, but it also points us ahead. Come thou long expected Jesus. And it teaches us to live here. It teaches us to live in the moments where, uh, you know, somebody may be missing from your table this Christmas. It teaches us where Christmas, uh, you know, maybe it's just the farthest thing from your mind because you're living in the chaos, and the busyness of today because work is insane. Maybe your bank account is empty and you have no cash for gifts. Maybe family stuff is just pretty intense right now. But it's in these moments, as we are anchored in Christ's first coming and expectant in his second coming, it is his grace that is keeping you eyes fixed on Christ, the one who bought you and is also beckoning you. See, grace bought us Verse 14 goes on. Grace is, is impacting every aspect of our life. We are immersed in God's undeserved favor from first to last. There's a yo-yoing happening here in verse 14 that, that he's bouncing back and forth from past to future and back. See, our confidence in the future return is because of the guarantee laid in the past and it gives us the grace to live in the present earnings. See, verse 14 points us back to Christ's death. See that when he gave himself on the cross to buy us or to redeem us, it says, to set us free from pay, by paying the ransom from our slavery to sin or what he says, our lawlessness, from all lawlessness. We were lawbreakers in our flesh. We were lawbreakers apart from Christ. We kept sinning. We were breaking God's moral demands over and over and over, and it is all that we could do. And so Christ did what was necessary by living a life without breaking the law and then taking the punishment the consequences that we deserve, that we should have received, he took them on himself. He gave himself. He sacrificed himself. Why? To redeem us from all lawlessness. He took the consequence. He took the stain. He took this, our sin on himself, and he brought us not just back to neutral, Not just say, okay, I took care of the penalty, now go figure out how to live your life. No, God's grace was overflowing so much so that look at it, and to purify himself, a people from his own possession. No, second, he purified us, he made us clean, and he put his righteousness on us that we might be justified. And now, enslaved to God, a people for his own possession. He bought us, and owns us, and gave us his clothes, gave us his righteousness. Beloved, we have a new master, a gracious master that bought us out of the oppression from our cruel master sin. Colossians 1, 13 and 14, it says that we've been transferred out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of the beloved Son. So we have a great... New standing of righteousness in Christ. We have been purified, made clean, declared right in Christ. But it doesn't even stop there. He's brought us, not just uh, taken care of our sin problem, not just made us righteous or declared us righteous in Christ, but then He has also, as His people, commissioned us, commissioned us to do His work, to be those change agents armed with the gospel, armed with this good news to tell others about how they might be set free from the cruel master of sin. See, third, we've been commissioned to be zealous for good works. We are sent out. We are sent out to do his work. But what are these good works? You know, we we use this a lot, right? This is kind of a Christian term. You've heard of good works or good deeds. Are we saved by the good things that we do? No. You can shake your head. Nope, we're not. Don't let anyone confuse you. Don't get that mixed up in your mind. You're not saved by the good things that you do and God takes notice, like, yep, okay, well, he's done enough, okay, on my team, yep, he's got good enough skills, she, okay, I want her, yep, she's on my team. No, 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 no. How are we saved? By good works or by grace? Grace. By grace. We've been bought by grace and we're sent out by grace to do good works. See, here's a simple definition. Maybe you're wondering what good works. What are we exactly to be zealous to do? Well, simply, Good works are helping others for their spiritual good. Let me say that again. It's helping others for their spiritual good, oftentimes by helping with physical needs. Helping others for their spiritual good, oftentimes by meeting physical needs. And the spiritual part is important now good works is all throughout Titus. He is motivating and equipping this, these churches here on this small island who are scattered abroad, who are in this strategic island for the advance of the gospel, and he talks about good works over and over and over again. And it is so important to not mix this up in our mind. It's helping others for their spiritual good, oftentimes by meeting physical needs. But the spiritual part is important. It's why in verse or chapter one, verse 16, why make-believers are unfit for any good work unbelievers, make-believers, aren't transformed. They're unregenerate by the Spirit of God. They can't do any spiritual good. They can do nice things to help people, but they're unfit for any good work. It's why young men in chapter 2, verse 7, are to be models in good works, Why we are to be known and to be exemplary, devoting our lives to helping others for their spiritual good by meeting physical needs. All of us, here we see all of us, any who are a Christian are to be zealous or eager, passionate, ready to serve. And in chapter three he'll go on and he says we must be ready and devoted. He says devoted twice, three, verse eight and verse 14. But here we're told that we are to be zealous to do these things. Now, many of you know this, but I'm a pretty zealous Packer fan. Grew up in Wisconsin. I play at noon today. <laughs> Anybody know who they're playing? Don't say it, don't say it. It's, we can't defile God's house by saying their name. <laughs> we should probably edit that out of the recording. <laughs> but I'm a pretty zealous Packer fan. I love to watch the Packers. But my zeal for them must be Pale in comparison for my zeal for the spiritual good of other people. And if that, if my zeal to watch the Packers, if an opportunity to arise this afternoon, that for to engage in good works for the gospel, and I said, no, not, I can't do that, and I'm gonna go watch the Packer game and said, then really, where is my zeal, my priority lie? And that's just one one example. But we are to be zealous, passionate, ready, devoted. Knowing that the gospel is the most important thing, that God's grace has come, and it has appeared, it has burst onto the scene, and we have hope for better days ahead is our greatest priority. It is what we engage in. It is what we are so eager to do. And we help people by meeting physical needs, which are often the pathway into the spiritual help people truly need, and all of this is by grace. Your ability to do any of these things, the skill that you have, this was by God's grace. Your purchase out of sin and into the Son, that was undeserved. Your involvement in good works is undeserved. God did not need us to do all of these things, and yet His grace outfits you with the skill and the suit that you need to swim in this world. It is all from God's grace. It is the pool in which we swim. It was the pool, it was God's grace that pushed us into the pool. It's God's grace that taught us how to swim and it is God's grace that teaches us how to swim alongside other people and how to throw out the, the, the life raft and how to throw out the things to come alongside because God needs to go down and he needs to regenerate them and then we get to come alongside in good works, helping train people how to swim. This is discipleship. This is good works. And so what are we to do? We're to surrender our life to Christ. We're to surrender to Jesus, our time, our talent, our treasure. This is what we do. God's grace bought us. We are a people for his own possession. We are a people commissioned to good works. And I am so thankful that there are many in our church that are committed, that are zealous for these things. Pastor, I get to hear about these things, but there are men sitting right here before us that stand ready to help you move furniture, to help with minor auto repair, help, to help you with budgeting and money management, home repairs. There are ladies in our church ready, zealous to engage in good works, to help with childcare, with meals, with compassion. There are many of you zealous already that have, are contributing to people in financial pinches, that are serving the many and various needs of our city, that are helping the hungry and the homeless, reaching out to kids and are most vulnerable with the gospel, caring for those in crisis. Good work. This is living out the grace of God in a graceless world. I had a very sobering meeting this week with many uh, church leaders and nonprofits and ministries and things that uh, exist here in New Bromples. And we met uh, with the McKenna Foundation, and they were putting before us just some of the needs, some of the statistics of our city and of Comal County, some of the, the, the problems that exist here in, in food shortages, and hunger, and kids, and uh, homelessness, and all kinds of things. And there was one statistic that really stuck out to me. And it was really, it was about foster care. You know, there's, I don't even remember now, the number of children that are here in Comal County. And I was thinking like, I wonder how many foster families are qualified that have been trained, that have opened their home up to children in need. Guess how many are in Comal County? I think it's over 100? A couple hundred, 1,000? 46. 46 in the entire county Comal County. There are 417 kids in that care. It's quite a few kids per family, isn't it? And that really needs to change as God's people rise up to care for the orphan. There's a whole host of that. I mean, I walked out of that meeting just like depressed. (laughs) It's like, sin still exists. We are God's people. We have the light of the gospel in a dark world. And it's really not. Comal County isn't really any different than any other county. Because sin exists. Problems exist everywhere. And that's why God has commissioned us to be zealous for good works. And so this Christmas, as we surrender to Christ, let me just challenge us to expand our capacity to serve. Let me challenge us to expand our involvement, to reach a little further, to surrender a little more. I know that's just one big kind of thing, but I know of many needs within our own church. There's an elderly lady that's connected to our church that's homebound, that could use some just care and encouragement. There's people within our church that need a ride from time to time. There are teens in a local shelter that could just use some love and some gifts this Christmas. These are some very tangible ways that we can live out the grace of God in our life. And if God is moving you this morning, if you're thinking, yes, this is Christmas, I know I, I need to l- just look beyond my own life. I need to be zealous. That is not something that I could characterize my own life by, well, we have a great opportunity right after the service uh, to serve a local shelter and some teens in need here right here in New Bromfels. And so if you are interested, if you're like, this is something that I could be involved in, then immediately after the service, I'm just gonna make this little pitch, we'll go back to the text, but I just wanna put immediately after the service, meet the Wellborns, just right over here. I've asked them to look into this opportunity, but we have a great privilege to extend the grace that God has shown us to others. And so right after the service, right over here, a way that we as a church can band together and to serve some in need. Those that have been kicked out of their homes in many cases and have nowhere to go and we can extend the grace that God has shown to us. See, so God's grace impacts our life from beginning to end, doesn't it? It impacts our life from beginning to end, and so let's look at our final verse here. God's grace leads us. God's grace leads us forward. It has saved us, it, is, it trains us, it keeps us, it has bought us and it also leads us and verse 15 here kind of stands here uh, as a in between to these two sections and it's really a charge to Titus and every preacher after him with some sobering words to declare these things to exhort rebuke with authority in such a way that people listen and take notice but what are these things what is the content of this message that is to be declared exhorted and rebuked What is the message that comes with authority? It's the message of grace. It's the message of God's grace. Don't miss this. The message that any preacher has is not an authoritarian message of do's and don'ts, nor a fluffy, feel-good-about-yourself, ear-tickling pep talk. It is a message of earth-shattering, life-transforming gospel of God's grace that burst into existence in the appearance of Jesus Christ. This is the message that is unapologetically proclaimed or should be from every pulpit every Lord's day. This is the authority. The authority is not in the man. The authority is not in the manner of his voice. The authority is the gospel of grace found in this book that can be opened and proclaimed with the authority that is in God's word, the power of God's word. Armed with grace, the gospel of grace is what I and every preacher is charged to lead with in both the manner of our life and the message of our lips. Grace leads us. It's the gracious coach or swim instructor that leads his swimmers well, knowing the impact of grace in his own life, and that has inspired and instructed and equipped others to swim by grace themselves. Beloved, regard the message of grace. Don't miss this in your own life. Don't get the good works and the grace mixed up Don't think that it's just grace that got me in and now I have to pull myself up by my bootstraps to keep going. It is God's grace, his kindness to you to instruct you and to keep you. It is his grace that puts Christ before you day after day. It is God's grace that has given you his word, accessible anywhere you go. It is God's grace that has given you a community of believers around you, to help you figure out how to live life in a way that honors God. And it is God's grace that teaches us to worship Jesus. To worship Jesus, that's the application. As we think about God's grace that leads us of the manner in which a preacher is to preach, a manner in which we are to hear preaching, not in a way that is ear-tickling, not in a way that puffs me up, but it is meant to lead us to worship Jesus to keep our eyes fixed on him, that's the message, that's the grace that saves, that's the grace that trains, that's the grace that keeps and redeems and leads and leads you to worship Jesus, to take eyes off yourself, eyes off the messenger, and point you to the grace and the glory in the appearing of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. It's grace that enlivens our soul to worship. It's grace teaches us to worship in spirit and in truth. And so we're gonna close our worship service now with just doing that, with worshiping Christ. This is what we do. This is why we gather. This is why we sit under God's word, not to make us better listeners, not to uh, move us in line, but God's word preached rightly with authority, without apology, is meant to make us better worshipers. And I hope this Christmas, your worship is rich as we dust off some of the old songs, as we uh, sing some of the newer songs. Not for tradition's sake, not for uh, appearance' sake, but simply to point us to the grace and glory that were found in the appearing of Christ Jesus and his return. And so as we worship, we're gonna sing a song, Yes.